What's up, good people? And welcome to episode seven of Good Things with Matt Wells. I can't believe we're on episode seven. We are chugging along, and I don't want to brag, but I'm gonna. This past week, we were number one on the podcast charts for like three days. I don't know what the podcast charts mean, and I don't know how the hell the podcast charts work, but I'm wearing a t-shirt that says number one podcaster in the history of podcasts, and I'm never taking it off. That part might not be true, but what it tells me is that um, there's a bunch of you guys out there listening, and that is very cool. So thank you, and let's get into it. Uh, I'm going to start things a little bit differently uh, on this episode. I'm still going to tell a story, but it's not an interviewing story. Back in 2004, my band at the time, Bucket Truck, was still very active. I was new in uh, the much music TV world. I was about a year and a half in. And for my non-Canadian listeners, much music is like Canada's uh, version of MTV simply put, and I was um, a music TV host or a, a VJ there. But music was still very much my focus. I thought that I was going to be a full-time touring musician. I mean, that's what I was working towards. I didn't have any kids yet. I was still just working and touring. And things were going pretty well for us. We had released this album, and we were getting a lot of attention, but we were still very much a independently powered band with this do-it-yourself mentality. That was sort of the, the school that we had come from because of the bands we'd listened to. And we were doing our own headlining tours, very sort of small cult following. But every now and then we were getting to open for um, these bigger bands. And one of these shows in 2004 was with Slayer, which was just mind-blowing. And I actually did, um, before that show, interview Kerry King, uh, the lead guitarist from Slayer. But that's another story for another pod. The other band on that bill um, was a band called Damage Plan. And in the heavy metal world, um, they were a fairly new band, but already kind of legendary because of two members, two brothers, Vinnie Paul and Dimebag Daryl. And even if you are not a fan of heavy metal, you will be familiar, I have to imagine, with the band Pantera, who were one of the sort of original big heavy metal bands to break out in the 80s. And Dimebag Darrow, the guitar player, and Vinnie Paul, drummer, uh, were members of that band. And they have gone on uh, in music lore to be historic. Dimebag, one of the greatest heavy metal guitarists of all time and um, Vinnie Paul, one of the greatest heavy metal drummers of all time. Now, you know, there is a sad ending to this story, so I think I'll start with that because I don't want this story to be a, a downer. Um, both Dimebag and Vinnie Paul uh, have, have left us. Dimebag, tragically, was uh, shot on stage in 2004, and just a couple years ago, uh, Vinnie Paul passed away. So they're not with us anymore, but their legacy lives on for many, many reasons. But not just musically, and this is where the story comes in. So we were opening for Slayer and Damage Plan in a big hockey arena. And we were nervous as hell. 
And by the time we got on stage, the crowd was a little bit like, who's this bucket truck band? But by the time we kicked into our first song, the crowd noticed and we noticed that Dimebag Daryl and Vinnie Paul were on stage with us. They were kind of like just into it. Vinnie Paul had a video camera. He was like, he was like recording us. They were, they had a drink in their hand and they were just completely into what we were doing. And it blew our minds. And it just eased the tension in the arena, on stage. And it made our night, our lives, really, instantly. And we had no idea this was going to happen. We hadn't even really talked to them beforehand. After the show, I remember uh, Vinnie Paul coming up and, and saying, You guys aren't metal. I don't know what it is, but it's pretty fucking heavy. And then he and Dimebag invited us into their dressing room. And we just hung out with them all night. They took out Jack Daniels. It was, it was like this cliche backstage heavy metal moment. And we were just one of, of, the, of the handful of bands playing. Nobody really, you know, knew us. Um, and these guys just took us in as if they'd known us their whole lives. And it was the most amazing night. And I, you know, I, I have come to learn, I mean, this is 18 years ago, right? But I've come to learn that this is part of the legacy of both of those men. Not only are they considered influential musicians in rock and roll and heavy metal, but they had this legacy of just being these salt-of-the-earth guys who never let the fame and the size of their legacy get to their heads where they wouldn't allow themselves just to be cool with other musicians, especially younger ones. And it was this idea of maybe not mentorship, but just guidance and letting you feel the confidence and the camaraderie, like you're part of this and you're, you're good enough to be here. And I got to tell you, as a young musician and, and as a bunch of guys who are just trying our hardest to, to make a go at this, that meant so much to us that they would take the time to just go, yeah, we're all just musicians here. We're all trying to do something we love. And let's just connect on that. That that's, that's still sticks with me, you know? I'll never forget it. And my guest knows something about that. My guest knows something about being an influential musician, uh, having a lot of success, but never letting that get in the way of connecting with musicians and lending his time, his advice, or his good energy to anyone who might be in his orbit. My guest is Walter Schreifels. And if you don't recognize the name, you'll definitely recognize some of the music or some of the bands. His most notable band is a band called Quicksand. Coming out of the Nirvana era, Quicksand were um, quickly becoming uh, one of the big stadium rock bands. They were still opening for bands like Raging Against the Machine and the Deftones, but they were on their way. But they only lasted two albums. Walter moved on to the next project, which was Rival Schools. Um, and he also has a whole 
influential backstory before both of those bands when he started in the New York hardcore scene, which you'll hear about in this interview. Because those bands had a, a really big impact on me. And it's not just about the music, it's, it's, they impacted me as a person. And I've taken a lot of what I've learned from the positive music and the positive mental attitude that they talked about in their songs, I've taken that into my life as a father. Which is a very interesting thing when it comes to this loud, intense um, music that if you, if you didn't know any better, you would just think it's violent and loud, but there's so much more to it. So all of Walter's bands had a really big impact on me for many different reasons. Not the least of which is the theme song of this podcast that you hear every episode. Good Things. Walter wrote that song. And he performed it with his band Rival Schools. And it helped me figure out what this podcast was. Also, before I got to know Walter, I was a fan. I was a fan of Quicksand. I was a fan of his old hardcore bands. And one day uh, in the early 2000s, Bucket Truck was making a record and we thought, wouldn't it be cool to have Walter Schreifel sing on one of these? And we were recording in Newfoundland, and we emailed him through a record company in New York. And within a couple of weeks, Walter was on a plane to St. John's, and he sang on this album with us. And the fact that he did that meant so much to us and to our confidence. And, uh, and I'm so thrilled to have him on the podcast, because I'm connected with him in so many ways, not just because of the music, not because of the impact he had on me as a person, but without his song, I don't know if this podcast would exist. So, thanks for listening, thanks for being here, and this is Walter Schreifels on Good Things with Matt Wells. Walter Schreifels. What up, Matt? How are you? I'm good, man. Are you ready to tell me something good? It's a beautiful day out here in, uh, in New York, and uh, it's sunny, and uh, that's a good start. It's a good day out. You know, Walter, you're the only person on this podcast that I could ask, actually ask this question to, because your song is the, is the song I'm using as my theme song. I'm so honored by that, man. That's amazing good things by your band rival school. So I get to ask you when you were writing the song, what was the vibe? Because I know what, it, what it means to me and how it feels to me, obviously. Yeah. So yeah. how about, how about for you? Do you, can you remember, can you go back to when you wrote that song? Uh, yeah, I guess, you know, I'm coming from a, from like when I got started writing music, it was uh, in this sort of positive mode, you know, with um, Gorilla Biscuits, a lot of the songs are like uplifting mm -hmm you know, messages. Uh, and so with good things, I think I just had those chords and uh, the lyric good things are coming was the just, you know, sometimes I mean, you're a songwriter. So sometimes just the line ends up coming out of your head. And then I was like, okay, great. So now I'm stuck with this one. How do I build around it? And so I just kind of took a uh, took, I just built around that idea, you know, like the basic idea of, um, you know, things come in waves. There's always going to be uh, a time where things are rocking and you're feeling good. And conversely, there's going to always going to be a time where you're feeling like, damn, I don't really, 
I, I don't have a handle on the situation. And like, it's in those, those times, you know, I feel people feel those things more acutely than they do the good times sort of in a way or, or can, you know? Um, so yeah, that's, you know, basic idea. And I figure anyone can relate to that. It's interesting because, you know, oftentimes when we, I don't know if you have this experience with music, but you know, for me, sometimes when I hear a song or I get my own idea of what it's about, it's oftentimes very different than what the writer had. But yeah. your intention for this song hit me exactly the way you intended it. Yeah, cool. I, I mean, I also wanted to, some of my songs are like, and I don't know if, you, if you're like this too, but like some of them I really don't know what the hell they're about until like yes. they're almost done. And I'm like, oh, okay. So maybe this is talking about that, but other, I really prefer in some ways, the ones that are just like exactly what they seem to be. Um, but those, sometimes those simple ideas are kind of hard to, to come by, you know, and, and this one, and so some, I'm really psyched that you, you like this one. Cause I think this is, this is one, certainly one of, one of the good ones where it worked out that way. Well, it helped me honestly formulate the exact idea of this podcast. You know, I, I've been flirting with it for a while and I had been thinking about that song, but one day it just clicked. I was just listening to it and I was listening to the lyrics. I was like, that's what it is. It's like, good things are coming. Yeah. And literally that's the vibe, you know? So yeah, thank you, they Walter. Are. They are, you're welcome. And <laughs> thank you. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, that sort of PMA, positive mental attitude um, vibe that existed for, you know, the, the, the hardcore bands that you were involved in. Yeah. And I think that would be a good place to start, especially for our listeners who, who maybe are not aware of that world, because I've said it here in the pod before. And I, you know, when I send my kids to school, to this day, I, when I write them notes in their lunch, I always end it with PMA, uh -huh. positive mental attitude, you know? Yeah. And that was one of the things, almost as much as the music for me uh -huh. from that time, that's one of the things that I loved and connected with the most. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's almost in complete contrast to the idea of what most people think hardcore music is. Yeah. Yeah. And if you could I just talk about that, that scene a little bit, what it meant to you and, and explain that world. I think it might, it's hard to say what it would be like for a, a kid getting into it right now. But for me, like I wanted to get into um, punk and hardcore and that kind of thing. Cause I was sort of, thought it was kind of, you know what I mean? Like if the idea of like the sex pistols or something like that, like you spit and you know, you're kind of like shoplift or whatever, you know what I mean? There was some, something about like being a bit and like a punk, like antisocial and just kind of being bad in a way was my idea of what it was. Uh, in truth, I'm not naturally that kind of a person. So I, I was always kind of posing in that regard, but um, what I discovered as I got into it is that you didn't really have to play this role. You know what I mean? That that was part of what drew kids to this kind of music was the fact that um, it was a sort of music that a lot of kids, you know, with like, not all, but I think it definitely has an attraction of kids that have problems. You know what I mean? That find this music. And that doesn't mean that they're bad kids, but they're not like, they're looking for something to, um, to play some of these things out. And um, for me, when I, I, I definitely had that, but it was uh, when I got into it, I discovered things like Seven Seconds, uh, uh, even like Minor Threat, um, things that were like um, 
and youth of today, of course, things that were like, you know, when, when you're like, say 18 years old or 17 years old, uh, even though you're still like a kid, um, I think you have a lot of wisdom, you know what I mean? Because you, um, you've gone through all these things in life. You kind of have your own uh, view of the world in a lot of ways. And I think you, you understand a lot of, um, I think at least I did. And the people that I followed, like Ian Mackay, like his lyrics are so on point. Um, and he was probably like 18 when he wrote those lyrics. Um, and I found those kind of ideas, you know, even like straight edge or um, just the, the, the idea of, um, you know, uh, kind of like talking about, you know, the j just sort of basic premise ideas for, for life were being uh, dispelled through this music. And so I realized it wasn't just about like, um, you know, this sort of nihil nihilism, you know, that you'd get if you watched Suburbia or Decline of the Western Civilization. Like, I still think that shit's cool. Mm -hmm. um, and it and it's you know it is that way for some people but for me no i, I kind of like found something a, another lane in it and that for me was the straight edge scene and also um you know just kind of like more uplifting sort of things which is what i gravitated to yeah and you know when i look back on that time you know i found that music a little bit later in my life um and i really started connecting with the certainly what Discord Records did and the DIY approach and then the, the positive mental attitude and this idea of these, yeah. these bands that you'd see this footage of this crazy moshing happening, but you're like, yeah. these guys are straight edge. These guys and girls, they, they don't smoke, they don't do drugs. They're yeah. really in the positive thing. So that always resonated with me. And then it made the music almost more impactful to me. So, mm -hmm. but when I look back on that time now for me and what, what I took from it and, mm -hmm. and now is it, as a, as a father, mm -hmm. the things that I still use in my life that I took from, from what I was learning and reading in magazines and books was DIY. Basically these bands, you, they were in entrepreneurs, you know? Sure. I took that into my life uh, when I started my band, but I take it to everything I've done. Right. Yes. And like I mentioned, you know, just saying something simple to my kids, like, look, positive mental attitude today. Right. So I can do your vibe. Yeah. So when you look back at that time now and to the person you are as a dad, as a husband, what, what are some of the things that that's have stuck with you and you've kind of kept through your life and keep working with? I think that's a, you brought up a really good example. I mean, I think the idea of DIY, I mean, you're thinking about, you know, kids creating this sort of music and building record labels and like organizing tours and, uh, you know, just creating a band and like through the band, like you have people that take pictures of the bands, people who write fanzines about the bands, people that book the shows. So you're creating this whole like micro universe and it's not controlled by the adults. You know what I mean? So you, what you learn as you get into the adult world is you've already had the experience of doing it without the authority giving you permission to do so. So when you go through that sort of like that education process of that that the punk scene bestows upon you like you realize like i don't need to you know basically society set up in such a way that like okay you want to be a you know okay for veterinarian you should go to school for, to become a veterinarian it's probably the right thing to do you know um but 
there's so much in life that if you just like believe in yourself and put it together, like you can do it, you know what I mean? And I think that that's definitely very helpful, uh, throughout, um, throughout my life. And also the, the friendships and the relationships that you build through it is mm. also like, uh, super important because I think a lot of people, even though we have so much communication here, we are zooming with each other and, and, and all that there's so much communication, but it, it's like still people feel very alone and isolated in a lot of ways. And I think that, uh, through the, you know, this sort of like punk community, I mean, I'm not standing for like hardcore punk. I don't think you need this necessarily to like have these kind of feelings, but it is, it is, you know, uh, for me, it was very, um, yeah, it became like, this incredible network of people that ha have like different ideas about things that, um, you know, that, that can, can affect your, your, your path and in, in all kinds of positive ways or give you, give you a hand up, you know, and you can play that role for other people as well. Um, but I think that idea of, of DIY is, is super important. And I think, um, uh, useful throughout life. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I mean, you know, we wouldn't have been able to make this independent movie we made when we made Crown and Anchor. Yeah, it's amazing. Every, everything, everything I learned to be able to do that, I took from the band I was in, which we took from the bands that you were in and the bands that came before you, that bubbling scene, certainly, you know, Minor Threat and, and, and what Ian did with Discord Records. I mean, it was yeah. also important. And that's what I love telling my kids about, you know, like, because they can hear the music and might not connect with it. Or I'll show yeah. them footage and they'll be like, what is this? when I tell them what it's about. And that's, I, I kind of like doing that, you know, when I, when I have conversations, even when I go into meetings, you know, when I'm in my adult life and when I was in television and people would ask me the things I was into. And I, I might say, I really liked black flag and minor threat or gorilla biscuits. And they're like, you know, and I'll explain to them why I, I almost like doing that. There's something yeah. about like me dispelling that myth to the person who might not know. It was yeah. always interesting to me, you know? Yeah. Um, Walter, when when Gorilla Biscuits um, and you know Youth of Today, the, the scene in New York was really bubbling, and it was it was getting fairly big. I mean, you were selling out CBGBs, like it it was a thing there. Looking back now, certainly people who love this type of music and are fans of you, we understand how important it was, you know, to us and to the bands that came after. But at the time it wasn't really like you were trying to be in a band and get a record deal and, and make it your career. What, what was it like that? It wasn't like it's trying to make it a career. No, but did I want to like sell at CBGB's for sure. I mean, that was the, the coolness of that scene. And, you know, it might be hard to understand for, 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 you know, for listeners that aren't familiar, but like CBGB's is it this sort of mecca of, uh, you know, punk rock, like where uh, that's where the, you know, not only like Blondie and, and the Ramones and, and uh, Talking Heads, I mean, Talking Heads aren't really so punk, but you know what I mean? It's this sort of like small little crappy club in New York where all these like huge things were birthed in a way. And, and uh, so it was kind of like Madison Square Garden to me because the kind of music I was interested in. So the fact that it was in my city and if you can get 500 people to come to your show, you've sold it out. So like we didn't sell it out the first time. It was, took us some, uh, some time to get, you know, from begging them to let us play to finally getting to play 
to, you know, playing more times to like finally getting to headline to finally getting sell out. Like that was a progress that, you know, there was an ambition there, but I mean, as an idea of like becoming like um, a popular band, like, uh, you know, as a career that was never really the mindset um, because I really just wanted to succeed in this world and this parameters of this world, not in like the, the larger world and uh, or the pop world, like, you know, like, as soon as I got into hardcore, I was no longer really interested in like U2 or anything like that, or REM or any of these kind of like bands that I would have listened to before, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, once we, once we kind of got into, you know, that kind of peaks out and then you kind of, um, you know, and then that's kind of the edge of the earth of that world in a way. So, uh, but it was super exciting, like, you know, to, to get there and to be making, we not only made a seven inch on an independent rec record label, you know, where we like made all the records, but they like all sold out and we could play to your in Europe. And then we made an album and it was all, you know, we were teenagers. So it was all very cool and exciting. And Walter, you know, one more thing I want to ask about that time as we sort of move through your career when discord records was doing their thing i know I, and i bring this i bring them up because i know that what ian was doing in minor threat was it was mm -hmm. you know a, a big deal to you you and your sure. c2 right sure, yeah so what i always loved about um discord records and what they were doing is that they built this connection across the country where they were promoting their own shows and they were making sure they were controlling the ticket price. Like it was almost the total opposite or antithesis of what major labels were doing. Uh -huh. Was that something you got, your scene was doing too? Like saying, look, we need to sort of do this our way. We don't want to fleece the, the fans who are coming out. We want to do, do it responsibly that way. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Discord Records not only being like a kind of like putting on all these amazing records independently, like kind of being, you know, them and a, and a couple others basically being the first ones to do it. They set the tone for like what people were trying to do. And also you're dealing with kids. So for a kid teenager to pay at that, at that time, $5 to get into the show was like a fair price. $10 was like, really? Like who's playing for $10? Like mm -hmm. that's crazy. So you know, you could try to charge seven, but then that's kind of weird. You got to give $3 back and change. And it's like, you're just trying to, you know, it's a little suspect. So yeah, I mean, the aesthetic was kind of in place that this, these shows were like, uh, going to be affordable and were for the kids. They weren't to make profit. They were to like, to, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's, uh, it's not capitalistic. It's not exploitative mm -hmm. in any way. It's, it's like more uh, organic and art re art related, although not without any of the pretense of like, when you say right. art, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it wasn't like this commodification of the music. And, you know, the fan base basically didn't have any money anyway, but that was the, that was the idea. So I, I think that that's like really still again, like really set people like you and I up to understand how, things work in, in, you know, nowadays too, because you, you, you know, everything is about like authenticity or like, mm -hmm. you know, your relationship with, with your other uh, people that support your work and you don't want to fleece them because you fleece them or, or grift them. Um, 
you're kind of really uh, setting limits on what you can do because people aren't stupid, you know, they catch on to it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but at the same time, people are super generous and to try to like, to support the things that they love, you know what I mean? And so people will like, uh, you know, buy all the vinyl or whatever because they want it. And because they know that the money goes directly to the artist uh, yeah. or, you know, at a show or something like that. So I think people understand that artists, especially now more than ever, I mean, I, I was on a major label and that's sort of, that is capitalism. That is like a commodification of, of the music. So it's a bit different thing, but I think nowadays where bands are, that's not really such um, a thing. Um, I think it's really that, that experience is a lot, uh, is, is very helpful. And that perspective is, is pretty on point. So when you grow up and you, you're sort of coming coming of age in that scene and that sort of uh, that that ethos around you, then you do eventually find your way to a major label with Quicksand. I mean, I know it started with Revelation and it was on an indie, but eventually you make it to a major label, which is yeah. a great thing and a great yeah. accomplishment. But I wonder, did you struggle with that? Oh, yeah. I felt, you know, shit, we're selling out, you know, like that's. But at the same time, like I just kind of got over it. I was in my in my twenties, early twenties, and uh, you know, it, was an, it opened an opportunity. And um, you know, I could like live in a, an apartment that was nicer than I was living in, and go on tour in a bus and like travel the world in in a, in a in a better way. Like, was it like I was rich? No, Jesus Christ, not at all. But I was able to like devote my life to this music on, on a different level. And especially at that time, like, you know, the major labels really controlled a lot of the means of like getting stuff out, you know what I mean? In terms of like their connections to the press or the radio and all that kind of thing. So yes, you know, uh, there was a feeling of like uh, a certain uh, pangs of guilt at like participating in that just based upon my, uh, you know, background sort of, but, um, I think I I don't really regret it, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. just for the experience of having done it. And also the fact that like, by virtue of, of doing that, a lot of people heard about my music that never would have otherwise. And I know Mm -hmm. enough from people, uh, you know, for example, like the good things, you know, talking about that song, you know, like that, that, that's on a major label. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So like, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm honest, like that, that system allowed me to like get my word out a lot uh, more broadly in a way. So, you well, know, it's, it's, like, it's like, you were, um, it's like you, you, you infiltrated, you were, you were fighting the good fight yeah. from the inside now. For sure. Yeah. And I, and I, I didn't, I absolutely, that's it. And I didn't experience much in the way of creativity, creative interference mm-hmm. uh, because of the nature of the, of the, the time that I got into it and also the kind of artist that I am, it's just like, yeah. I definitely had it, had it an understanding of like, okay, this is cool, but it's not worth like trying to create some bullshit to try to sell records. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I was very much in tune with like what I wanted to do and with the people that I was doing it with. So quicksand um, starts to become quite popular i guess coming out of like the late 80s with like there was this big change in music certainly i guess with like post nirvana and post grunge Uh you were you were part of this sort of like next wave yeah and and 
I mean, you were touring with the Deftones, Offspring. I mean, it, it started to really grow quickly for Quicksand, right? Yeah, I mean, we, I think we were, you know, we got scooped up in the whole post Nirvana, like maniac kind of signing bands that the record labels didn't really know what could be popular at that point is, was my kind of take. Uh, so all these kind of bands that were interesting were getting signed and giving, given this sort of like, you know, like the Melvins were on a major label, like right. Sonic Youth had a gold record at that time. So I think it was like a very special little window that opened for uh, bands that were doing something really cool, but on an independent basis to now be exposed to people that were like, you know, wouldn't know about that shit otherwise because they don't live near CBGBs or they don't, they're not like uh, have access to that kind of stuff, or they don't have a record store near them that's like carrying independent records, you know? So uh, it was, it was a means to reach those people. Um, but yeah, we were popular, you know, like we, we had a good run for sure. And, and, you know, still, still get, I think more importantly, uh, is that the music continues to be meaningful to people that it, that uh -huh. it's not just like, uh, like I remember bands that were like, had hits that were bigger bands, you know, but people don't really pine for that, those records anymore. Like it's just a yeah. different thing. Yeah. There was something special. I mean, I don't mind telling you because, you know, I was a fan before I got to know you. Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean, I was snowboarding yesterday and mm -hmm. I was listening to slip Dope. and it was, it was the, it was the best day ever. I, I was just like, Oh my God, this was perfect <laughs> music for the perfect day. So it, I mean, that album came out in 93. Yeah. And yeah. Still... So, I mean, that's, that's really the riches of it, to be honest. So like, yes, we had, we had our moment, you know, our, our moments and, uh, but it's really that, you know, we were trying to make the best music that we could make and make it cool, make it innovative and inviting to people. And I think like the effort that we put in, like the, the goodness of it is, is that it still has relevance to people. Yeah. So, you know, it, it grows really fast. You're popular. You're getting played on MTV. You're, you're <laughs> Beavis and Butthead are talking about yeah. you. Like you're part of the, of the rock music conversation. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think you played shows with White Zombie, Anthrax. I mean, it's there. Yeah. But during that time, you're on a major label, you're, you're touring the world, you're doing all these great things, you're selling records, which is like still the dream of any band and any musician. This is what we want. This is what you hope you hope to aspire to. Yeah. What, what were the setbacks and the obstacles for you? I mean, were you struggling with the business of it? Were, what were the things when it wasn't so good? I guess I, I kind of got down on, um, you know, I guess earlier I was saying like the cool thing was, was now we could like just tour for so much of the year. Um, you know, cause our rent was paid and we got it. We had a bus, which is very, very nice way to travel. Um, but I think that to some degree, like touring, like 300 days a year was a lot after a while. So I think that started to like, you know, we're spending too much time together. And, um, and I think we kind of, I think that kind of burned the band out a little bit. Um, and maybe if we had taken some time off, we might've like found a little bit more space. We only made the two albums and, uh, I, I think I got a little worn out by that actually, but, um, again, it's like not, uh, I'm not bitter or sad about that exactly, but it would be sure. tough, man, you know, cause you're trying to have a relationship. So you have, I remember spending a lot of time, like on tour, like pining for my girlfriend at the time, or this kind of you know, thing. And it's just like, 
so while you're doing the thing that you want, you're also kind of wanting to like get out of it, which is, uh, which is, I think also part of being human condition. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Walter, when I, when I did, you know, my 10 or 11 years at much music and MTV interviewing artists, Mm -hmm. that was the, that was the thing that occurred to me the most because Mm -hmm. I, my, my sort of quote unquote music career was coming to an end just as this TV career was starting. Mm -hmm. So even though I had this sort of really exciting new job, I was still pining for the fact that my band had broke up and I thought that's what I was going to do. So it was like this really weird time, but it's immediately it started to occur to me, like whether I was talking to Chris Cornell or I was talking to Alanis, that there was, there was this thing where they would talk to me a lot about how unhappy they were at moments. Yeah. And that really started to resonate with me where I was like, some of the, some of these people who have made my favorite music were really not enjoying it all the time, you know? Yeah. And I guess there is something to, to be said about like exactly what you just said. You're kind of living in this bubble where you're doing what you want to do, but you don't realize all the other sort of human normal things that takes away from you. Yeah. And you're, you know, you're, you're kind of stuck with this group of people and, and everyone's feeling these different kind of pushes and pulls from it. And um, so I think that, that, that is, you know, it's, it's not for everybody, you know, mm-hmm. not for everybody. And it's not like, it's not like, obviously like I didn't dislike it so much that I quit like completely. Um, I just needed a break from that sort of setup and mm-hmm. uh and eventually, you know, kind of found my balance in a, in a more um, way that was just kind of worked better for me. Um, and was that the transition from Quicksand into Rival Schools? Yeah, I mean, I definitely got some time off between those bands because I was sort of like on a record label that uh, got bought by another record label. And then, you know, there was like this whole business kind of thing that was happening for a number of years and they just weren't releasing my record. So I was making demos and shit. And that was like, in a way cool, cause I was present, but then I got hungry to get out. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And it's just like, it's it sort of, um, by the time I got to rival schools and we had an album out, I was ready to go out and do it and, and was, was, uh, you know, it was, it was quite, a, quite a bit, but also not as much. So it was a little bit more manageable for me. And Walter, did you ever, I, I, and I know you have no regrets about this path because we'd sort of talked about this infiltrating, you know, and, and working from the inside, but I wonder along the way, you know, there are shitty business things that happen. Mm-hmm. Was there anything like that going on that was getting you down or like just kind of breaking your heart a little bit? Uh, well, I think there was, um, you are dealing with a company, you know what I mean? So, so going back to like what we're talking about, the, the DIY aspect of just being able to like do what you want to do um, to like having to wait until, you know, your record label opens the budget to do the record, you know, what I mean? or tells you that the songs are good enough to like, to like, we can make the record now, which is so it's the worst spot you could be in. So I, I did not like that at all. And I persevered through it. Um, and it's not like I didn't have control. Like I could have at any time said, you know, I'm out, you know, but I, I just kind of went through the process. And I think 
I don't know if that was necessarily the good or bad choice. I think it would have been fine either way. But yeah, that was tough to be like, I have to wait for someone else's permission to make my music. Like that was, I mean, I could make my music and my rent was being paid, et cetera, which is really cool. Um, but I was losing my connection to my audience and my ability to like produce and to like tell the story. And uh, so I don't know if heartbreak is the right way to put it, but it, it is frustrating and- uh, Disappointing, I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, yes, I, it was it just was like annoying to have to like deal with other people <laughs> in that regard, you know what I mean? Because sure. the, even the most well-intentioned, you know, people, they're just working, the, the difference is they're working for a company, you know what I mean? Yeah. With like, uh, with, you know, different, not necessarily, the same goals or the same politics that you're trying to deal with. So the politics was really annoying. Um, and, you know, I handled the best I could. And, uh, and, and the fact that I'm still making records and have that kind of um, is, is really kind of amazing that so, so having to get through that, you know, as an artist and also just as a person. Mm -hmm. I think made me stronger. You know what I mean? I, I think it would have been cooler had things uh, been more direct, but at the same time, like I also made choices that, that kind of created that, that uh, the possibilities for, for it to run that way. Yeah. So, you know, it is what it is. Walter, one of the, one of the things I've come to admire about you and this, you know, this, this started when I got to meet you and I got to know you a little bit, but I was always um, so, what's the word, maybe impressed, maybe just um, in awe of you being open to come to Newfoundland and first of all, on a whim, just kind of come out and record some songs <laughs> with these guys you'd never met, mm-hmm. that you were so open to that and you, mm-hmm. you, you, you put in so, so much and then that you would, you know, within a, a year later, come and tour with us but we're like this really big loud heavy band you're like fuck it i'll just play these new songs that i'm right i'm writing and i've written to try them out like there was no ego no pretension like i don't care where as i've described like you you were on this major label for 10 years Mm -hmm. play with the deftones the offspring rage all these bands but you were just so open to to this experience yeah i i think I feel one of the one of the coolest things ever was especially that first time going up to uh, to Newfoundland and working with you guys. Uh, a that you had reached out to me is like I just want you to come up here and and sing on this one song. You know, we'll get you up here, we'll hang out, and uh, the idea that I would be meeting people from Newfoundland and like be just, I don't know, just I, that's the kind of person I am. I'm just interested in stuff like that and like we had such a good time and uh, yeah, just everyone was so cool. Like we just had a blast up there. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. that was fantastic. And going on that tour was incredible. I mean, I I feel like the Maritimes and like Newfoundland are like so close to where I live in many ways, but are like, it's almost like a a completely other world. You know, like Mm -hmm. I've been to Europe a million times. I've been to Japan, Australia, a bunch and um, South America. Uh, but yet here's this whole other world, you know, of like, you know, PI, Moncton, uh, St. John's, St. John, you know what I mean? Like all these like 
that world to me is, is super fascinating and, um, and really, really cool. And, um, and that you guys were all just so welcoming and warm and such cool people. And, uh, and that it was an experience that I would never have. It's really the riches of what I do, to be honest, like, Mm -hmm. um, like I love traveling and I love having those kind of experiences and, uh, having people around the world, having friends around the world and understanding, you know, just a little bit about uh, how people are living and what they're into and like the commonality and the differences is uh, a very cool kind of uh, perk of, of what I do. I, I think you were with a major label for like almost a decade, right? Uh, at least. Yeah. So when that time came to an end, because because I'm thinking this, I guess that had to be early 2000s. I was on major labels through, I probably made like five major label records, I think. Um, so, you know, if Slip yeah, came over, out- Over like probably 20 years. Right. So I guess I'm just trying to put in perspective, you know, you, you'd done this time with the labels and when you were the label, regardless of how much money you're making, there's certain things that are being taken care of. And then when that goes away, uh-huh. was that a, was that a difficult transition for you? Um, or had you set yourself up where you're like, no, I can live this way. I guess I'm trying to illustrate to people, like how, how does life change for you then? I think the part that I remember feeling a pinch was, uh, I think it might've been like in kind of rival schools days where just like I was on some sort of like very low sort of like holding pattern amount of money. And then every once in a while, I'd have to then like call my A&R guy to like try to get some more like little bullshit amount of money because they weren't putting out a record by me, but, um, but I was still under contract. So just like being in that position of having to like, um, you know, sort of, uh, yeah, just having to call and, and, and get money to, to like, I know that's the first thing that comes to my mind. I did not like that. Yeah, that <laughs> sucks. And, uh, and I remember working at a, uh, at a bar, like for a, a couple of, uh, for a few weekends and, you know, just to be like, I got to start trying to like work, you know what I mean? Because I don't want to call the fucking major label to like get, you know, some bullshit amount of money. Um, while I like kind of sit, like I, I create and creatively like die on the vine because I'm not yeah. doing anything. So uh, I, I, I did that and I didn't really, that didn't click with me either. So I just kind of like put my back more into like making things happen, uh, which was ultimately positive. So you had to work at a bar after that first rival schools record? No, prior to. Um, oh, so in between. In between, like after quicksand and, and and before rival schools was like a few years. So they, you know, the record level got bought out by another company and blah, 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 blah. And that's so tough. That's that's a tough thing to do. When I was in were... a holding pattern. Yeah, it, it sucked. And like, and I, it stopped me creatively, but I wasn't I wasn't about to like go back to college at that point, which is something I could have done uh, mm-hmm. to try to find some other means of making money. And then like I worked at a bar, but for a very short time, like a few weekends uh, to just kind of see what that was about. And uh, I, I didn't stay with that, uh, but, um, but, you know, kind of gave me a feel for like what real 
life was, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you've got to pay your bills. And, and so there was a little bit of time where I was like kind of squeezed financially and just de felt dependent on this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I did not like that feeling. And so eventually like things started to pick up with the rival schools and things were, were fine. And I, I was, I was doing, you know, pretty well. Uh, but I never wanted to be in that position again, which I, I haven't been. And in some respects, I have to imagine that what you had learned and the person you were from those early hardcore days, putting your amp on a, probably on a skateboard and getting on the bus and sure. CVs or on the train, like yeah. you, you were built for that downtime and that, and that sort of not giving up because I love making music and I'm not going to let this part of it stop me. For sure. I mean, I, I knew, uh, I knew I was going to make it, you know what I mean? I was going to get through, but just felt like uh, I'm on the shit end of this right now. You know what I mean? And like, how do I persevere through it? And, and again, like I didn't know when it was going to end. You know what I mean? I didn't know if they would ever, if I'd ever get to make this record. So in, in a sense, like I had given up my agents. This is my, you know, looking back on my life, kind of like hindsight perspective, but like, I felt that I had given up my agency in my own thing. You know what I mean? Because like, I can't make a record until they say I can make a record. And obviously they can't let me starve, but what's, they're not going to like make my life comfy either. So I'm in a sort of like purgatory situation. And, um, and I guess I sort of justified it by like, A, I was going to make a record. B, um, I'm still a professional musician, you know what I mean? So, so it's like my own concept of who I was, you know, was maybe a little bit, I was clinging to that in some way um, because I don't think I'm not above doing what I have to do to make money, but I want to, uh, you know, if I really need it, but I don't want to put myself in a position like that again, where I'm just like, you know, kind of twiddling my thumbs waiting for someone else to make it happen for me. And uh, I think, you know, that I DIY thing, you know, to return to that is like, I just felt like I had lost some of my agency. So that was a, a time uh, where uh, there, there was definitely some struggle and, uh, you know, it, it was, I had to kind of figure out my priorities and, it, you know, just get through it, you know, in, in a lot of ways. And it sounds like, you know, being, having that sort of PMA positive mental attitude sort of instilled uh, helped you in some respect not give up altogether uh for sure I mean I the thing is I, I can't you know you just what happens when you're really down is you know for me I was like I can lay on the floor in fetal position and cry and cry and cry and cry eventually I'm gonna stop crying and I'm gonna have to get off the floor like what am I gonna do you don't it just doesn't go away so mm -hmm. it's good to cry and and to like you know, feel your own suffering, I suppose, you know, when, when that, if you get broken down that low, that's not bad, mm. but you still have to keep moving. So it's not like I, you know, I will defeat this with PMA. No, <laughs> <laughs> I've just, the, you know what I mean? I'm going to spray my PMA can. Psst, okay. Now I can walk. I thought uh, you're, you're totally messing me. I thought that's how it happened. No, it's not, <laughs> but it is good to like, I think, I think to understand like in the long haul of things is like nothing is necessarily as 
uh, uh, bad or, or you know, I, I, I'm, I'm down for things to be as great as they can possibly be. But like, there's always someplace lower you could be. And there's always, you know, uh, so like, you know, and time passes, you know, the things that were upsetting you at this one period of time, not to say they're not real or they're not like affecting you, but you're trying to get through life. Like this is the story mm -hmm. of like your life and how you progress from the point you started to the point you end up, you know what I mean? And it's like um, understanding that, that it's that kind of a journey is, uh, is my PMA, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it, is that it's like, because I feel this way today, like right now I'm kind of sick. I have a fever. I'm supposed to go work in the studio tomorrow. I'm a little anxious that I'm going to be too sick to do it. I got to take another COVID test. I'm really, I have a little bit of anxiousness about that. Uh, okay. So I'm not like at my total best, but I'm very happy to be talking to you. You know what I mean? And we'll see what happens with this thing tomorrow. And if, if I do have COVID, I'll, the world's not going to fall apart. Like I'll just figure it out. You know what I mean? But that's definitely from the benefit of, um, I mean, maybe those aren't good examples, but like, that's the benefit of living long enough to see like, when you, when I was like on tour with quicksand and things were so, you know, intense and like, oh my God, I miss my girlfriend or like, you know, or like, this is not, this is not, shouldn't be the single. Oh my God. Or like the drummers messing up this one part in the song or, you know, whatever it was that it was like so important to me mm -hmm. at that time that it was affecting my happiness was like in many ways, like not really big picture thinking, you know? So, yeah. So, but you know, you got, you have to go through that. You have to, and, and it never ends. A wise man um, once said, good things are coming. Yeah, there you go. That's a good, it's a good mantra. You know what it I mean? And, and it's true. It's true. Um, Walter, how does it feel to have, you know, still be now playing shows of quicksand and making records of quicksand and all these shows that still happen with Gorilla Biscuits? Like it's this really cool full circle thing that's happened in your life. It's got to feel amazing. Yeah, it's, it's really cool to feel connected through music and through like you know where there's kids that are listening kids that were like not born when i was doing some of this stuff uh and to have these friendships that have been enduring for such long periods i mean you and i now have been friends for for such a long time mm -hmm. and that those connections like uh make my life very rich and uh and and i feel like uh very vital and still hungry, you know, artistically, I just want the story to continue and get, uh, and, and say different things and, and keep it to challenge myself and, uh, that I got something that I want to do and accomplish, um, is, is really a very fortunate and that the, yeah, these friendships and, and sort of like legacy of, of, of the amount of my life that I've devoted to music, just feel very rewarded by all that and grateful. Very cool, Walter. Very cool. Thank you for all that. Okay, man, this is how we end the Good Things Podcast. Five quick questions. They can be uh, short or long answers, starting with tell me something good about your life. Um, gosh, that's very, very, uh, that's very long. Uh, I got my health. I got, you know, great people that I love in my life. And uh, I'm... Uh, I enjoy the work that I do and, uh, and I get to see the world. I love all that stuff. So I feel very blessed. Tell me about a good memory. 
going to St. John, no, is it St. Uh, George Street? Is it George Street? What's the main? <laughs> George Street. Is that the main drag? Yeah. George Street, like uh, the first night that we hit George Street, I think it was on a weekend. And just, it just seemed like this endless amount of bars and uh, these different kind of bluegrass and, and folk bands, like jamming and seeing young people and old people singing together and knowing all the words to these songs in, in St. John's. That was that was a really awesome memory to me. Getting screeched in in in, <laughs> in, uh, in Newfoundland. That's connected to yeah. It. Those are um, some of my fondest memories too. That time with you. Epic. Um, tell me a good song or album we should listen to to make us feel good. I don't know if this is like a feel good album, but I'm trying to get into uh, Nick Cave. Oh yeah. And uh, Tender Prey is the one that I've been listening to lately. Okay. That's um, a good one. I don't know if that like makes, it's just cool. Like, I don't know. I, I think Nick Cave is a, like an artist that has like grown over the years and, and still is very relevant and uh, interesting and mm-hmm. kind of showing someone like me how you can keep doing it. Like keep mm-hmm. being interesting and keep developing and uh you know, so that's something I'm listening to. Very cool. Um, a good movie or a good book that you recommend? I just saw this movie called uh, What About Me? And uh, it was directed by, it's a female director. Let me see if I can find her name. Um, and... Uh, it's just really cool. It's fr- it was actually made in um, the '90s, and uh, it stars Richard Hell, Johnny Thunders, um, Johnny Thunders like acts in it. Johnny Thunders is like the the artist. Like uh, yeah, he's in the movie. It's uh, what as himself. Uh, no, he plays. Uh, he has, he has like a, it's just a, his, he does the soundtrack of the movie. Oh, okay. What about me? This, it's Rachel, Rachel. Um, Amado, Amadio. Yeah. And uh, it's about a woman that becomes homeless in New York City. It's in the early 90s, but it looks older because it's uh, shot on 16 millimeter. And it's just, I saw it just this week and uh, it's just so awesome. Like, uh, it's kind of, um, it just shows like this really cool angle on New York. And, and uh, I, I don't know, I really like it. Cool. Um, Walter, lastly, tell me something good that we should always do for ourselves. Uh, I think it's nice to have some sort of like, uh, keep your body moving, keep, keep your, uh, making sure everything works. You know what I mean? Eat, eat well. You know, if you can, like, I didn't buy eat well, I don't mean like, you know, you don't have to be like some alfalfa sprouts, like Gwyneth Paltrow kind of neurotic kind of way, but just like realize that, um, you know, moving your body, making sure everything works, um, tells your psyche like that, you you know, that you're working together. So I, I, you know, I run, I do yoga. Uh, I don't always eat good food, but I, I try to, to uh you know like I, I i eat pretty well um and and sometimes you crave a muffin oh jesus dude that's 
since that's the bane of my existence, you know, uh, it's the first thing you said to me when I met you. (laughs) That's hilarious. I don't have any good muffins where I live now. So I've had to switch to like granola. It kind of sucks. Uh, and also I've been vegan for a while now. So it's like, there's just like my, my vegan, like muffin selection is just like, it's just, I'm just at a disadvantage, Matt, to be honest with you. But, uh, don't give up Walter. Yeah, no, I won't. I mean, you know, you always gotta, you get, you get into your patterns, you know what I mean? You don't want to be too stuck in them. So I, I try to try to loosen up, but that was hilarious. I think it's like the first thing I said, like, where can I get a muffin tomorrow? No, it was where can I get a muffin right now? Right now. I was like, you, 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 you walked off the plane and you were hangry, Walter. And you're like, yo, I gotta, I gotta get a muffin. So we introduced it nighttime. I can't remember, but I do know that we introduced you to to Tim Hortons and you were okay. Yes. Tim Hortons is the best. (laughs) Um, Walter, thanks for doing this, man. So great to talk to you. Uh, appreciate it uh matt and uh so so honored that you're using good things as as the theme song and uh so good to see you well there you have it huh i've had a lot of you asking me about the song good things and where it came from was it written specifically for the podcast and i just thought this was a much more interesting way to tell that story So there you have it. Good Things with Matt Wells, inspired by uh, the song Good Things by Walter Schreifels. Walter also mentioned uh, being screeched in while he was uh, visiting us in Newfoundland. (laughs) For those of you who don't know, this is a sort of a long-standing quirky tradition that we have in Newfoundland where anybody who's visiting uh, has to kiss a codfish or like a stuffed toy puffin and then they have to repeat some sayings in like a a thick sort of Irish-like Newfoundland accent, which is a very simple way to to describe the accent. And uh, Walter did that while he was here. And you know, as much as I have been influenced by the, the spirit of those early 80s hardcore bands that Walter was involved with, um, you know, I'm still inspired by him and his approach to music and his just his his view on the business and and staying true to himself and the positivity that he continues to have and his generosity with his time he's just a good dude and i i really appreciate him and i'm still just a fan even though we've become friends i'm still truly just a fan and if you have not listened to any of walter's music you need to do it you need to go through his catalog Uh, Even if you're not into the sort of hardcore punk world, you will appreciate Quicksand, you'll appreciate Rival Schools, and you'll love all his solo stuff too. Just He's got this really unique voice, and and some of his acoustic stuff is just beautiful. Really great writer. So thank you so much to Walter Schreifels for being here, and thank you to all of you for listening. As always, uh, man, I I really appreciate you being part of this uh, podcast journey. So if you dig what we're doing, please uh, comment, rate us, tell a friend. All that stuff really helps us get out there in the podcast universe. And um, episode seven, man, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. But we're going to keep going. As long as you're listening, I'm going to keep talking. Good Things with Matt Wells is produced by me, Matt Wells, and Vince Buda for Greater Hood Productions. 
Our theme song, as you know, is Good Things by our friend Walter Schreifels, as performed by Rival Schools. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>